Let me invite you to take your scriptures tonight and go to Revelation chapter 1, please. Revelation chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me say thank you to Pastor Redland for the opportunity to speak these last three weeks. Not only for the opportunity to speak, but for the opportunity to go first. Uh, it's, that way, if anything needs to be corrected, it can be corrected. And I cannot be accused of correcting anybody because they haven't spoken yet. The, to my knowledge, on these matters. So tonight we're going to go through the book of Revelation. Obviously, if we darted through Daniel and we marched through Matthew, we're going to race through Revelation. So there will be gusts up to 40 miles per hour tonight. So it's a good thing we're in hurricane season. We're already used to that. But uh, just uh, certain things, too, I want to just... We're going to... I know that some of you are going to want to know some things like what do I think about the identity of the two witnesses? What is the mark of the beast? Those type of things. And I will address those, but if you have a different view than that, don't lose sight of the big picture that's taking place in Revelation. Don't let any of these minor issues of curiosity detract from the main thrust of what the book is about. So let's read our text and then we'll pray. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for the privilege that we have of looking at the Word of God tonight. Father, I certainly need your help to have a clear mind to accurately, clearly, and interestingly present the truth of Scripture tonight. Lord, please fill me with your Spirit and enable me to do that this evening. I pray that you'll be with those who have come to listen. I pray that you'll give them ears to hear. And I pray, Lord, that your Spirit will illuminate the truth of Scripture to our understanding tonight. Lord, help me to say what ought to be said in the way it ought to be said and Lord, please refrain me from saying things that ought not be said tonight. I pray that your will will be done now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin tonight with just a few introductory matters. One of the first things that's unique to me is that the book of the Revelation, more than just about any other book in the Bible, has a special blessing attached to it. Look at verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. Now, I don't know about you, but any time that God offers me a blessing, I want to take advantage of that blessing. So if God offers me a blessing for reading and absorbing and putting into practice what's in the book of the Revelation, then certainly that's exactly what I want to do. Now, people have asked, well, why is this blessing attached to it? Well, he gives us the reason in verse 3. He says, for the time is at hand. Well, what time? Well, verse number one answers that. The time that reveals the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the blessing of the book is that it's all about Jesus. I think that's why the blessing is attached to it. This book is all about him. You might have at the top of your published Bible the revelation of St. John the Divine. Don't you believe it. The inspired title of this is not the revelation of St. John the Divine, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all unpacking him. 
because he is from start to finish. Notice he says in verse number 8, I am Alpha and Omega. And by this he doesn't merely mean just the start and the finish, but he is the sum total. He is the start and the finish and everything in between. He is A through Z is the way that we could put it. Jesus is great. He's great because of who he is. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is worthy of our adoration because of who he is. He's also worthy of our adoration because of what he's done. What has he done? Look at the latter part of verse number 5. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is worthy of this dominion not merely because of who he is but also because of what he has done for us. Nobody has saved us. Nobody has made us clean. Nobody has washed us in his blood other than Jesus Christ. But more to the point of this book, not only about who he is and what he has done, but what he's going to do. Look at verse number 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. So Jesus Christ is great because of who he is. Jesus Christ is great because of what he's done. Jesus Christ is great because of what he is coming to do. As a matter of fact, when we get into chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus alone is worthy to take the title deed of this earth. John is going to weep because no one else was worthy. And someone says, wait a minute, look through your tears and see the lion. And as he looks through those tears to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, a lamb as it had been slain. And here we see that the one who has the power to take all is the one who laid down his life for you and me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, the outline of the book, look at verse number 19. He says, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, as we go through the book of the Revelation, a lot of it's going to be future, but here's the outline. He talks about things that have been things that are, and things that are going to be. Those are the three major points of the book. Chapter 1, the things that have been. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are. Chapters 4 through 22, the things that are going to be. Now, uniquely in all of this, Jesus is in control of what has been. Jesus is in control of what is. Jesus is in control of what is going to be. Now this is exciting to me because every time that you see something unpack itself in the revelation, in the tribulation, in all this future event that's going to come on the earth, it's because of what Jesus has done. He cracks a seal in heaven and when he cracks a seal in heaven, something happens on earth. He commands a trumpet to be blown in heaven and when a trumpet is blown in heaven, something happens on earh. He commands a bowl to be poured out in heaven and when the command is given for the bowl to be poured out, something happens on earth. Even when the most horrific things that this world has ever seen are transpiring upon this planet, Jesus Christ has not abdicated one iota of authority. He is in control over it all. So let's explore it together, shall we? Let's think first of all about the things that have been. That is chapter number one. Now the predominant theme in chapter number one is the fact that Jesus Christ is in charge of all things. 
Notice in verse 13 that he walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And the seven candlesticks are the churches. So Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches. Wherever two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst. Do you understand that tonight as you and I met as the church of Jesus Christ in this localized place, that Jesus is in our midst tonight. He is walking in the midst of the candlesticks. Not does he walk in the midst of the churches, but his word is authoritative. Look what he says in verse number 16. He says, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the biting asunder of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow, discerning the very thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus walks in the midst of the churches. Jesus' word is authoritative. Jesus holds the keys to death and hell. Notice what he says in verse number 18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. I don't think a commentary can be improved upon than the, what the late Lester Roloff said about this verse. He said, I can't go to hell because Jesus has me locked out. Isn't that a great thought? He holds the keys to the eternal destiny of men. He holds church leaders in his hands. He says that he has the stars in his hands, and the stars, he tells us, are the angels of the churches, these angeloses, these messengers of God that have been entrusted with a communication from heaven. Now, notice how authoritative Jesus is. He walks in the midst of the church. His word rings with authority. He possesses the keys of death and hell. He is the one that holds the, even the best of human leaders in his hand. What do we do in response to all this? Well, look at verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. When you see Jesus in all of his glory, there's only one thing that you can do, and that's fall at his feet. If the most important human were to walk into this building tonight, we would all stand. But if Jesus were to walk into this building tonight, we would all prostrate ourselves before him. You understand, ladies and gentlemen, that this book is about Jesus and what our worshipful response ought to be. What Jesus has been is what he always will be. What he has been, he is, and what he is, he will continue to be because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which brings us to the things that are in chapters 2 and 3. The things that are. Now, there are some people who hold that this is a... Uh, panorama of different eras that take place within the church age that this is describing a progression of seasons that go through uh, the church age and certainly I think there are some parallels that we can draw but I don't think that's the major thrust of this for starters, all seven of these churches existed in the first century. So we didn't have to wait to some Laodicean age to get to the church of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea is already existent in the first century. Moreover, it's interesting that if, like, for example, the second church, Smyrna, was a successive age of church history beyond John, then that would have started the events that would be hereafter. 
But you'll notice that it's not until we get to chapter 4, verse 1, that he says that the hereafter things begin. So whatever things are taking place in chapters 2 and 3 are taking place right now at the time of John and are taking place throughout the remainder of the church age. Moreover, after the death of Peter, remember Jesus predicted that Peter would be martyred, that Peter would be taken to a place that he did not want to go. After Peter was martyred, I know of nothing that has to be fulfilled for Jesus to come again. That was the last prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before Jesus could return to planet Earth. Even in the first century, people weren't looking for successive ages of church history. They were looking for Jesus 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven, who's delivered us from the wrath to come. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the New Testament was always placing the rapture of the church as something that was imminent, something that was impending, something that could happen at any moment. So for all of those reasons, I think it's best to not see these seven churches as successive ages of, in church history as much as to see them as seven types of churches that largely have existed all throughout the seven, throughout all time of the church age. They existed at the time of John. I think these type of churches exist in our age today. Which brings us to the third major division of the book of Romans and the vast, uh, Revelation rather, and the vast section of Revelation, and that is the things that are going to be hereafter. We see that in chapters 4 through 22. Now, there are four major views as to how we should take chapters 4 through 22. There's the non-literal view, and this view is basically um, held by liberals. And the view is basically there's nothing in this that's historically accurate. This is all just a big uh, symbol of graphic pictures to show the battle that has existed through the ages and good and evil. There's no return of Christ that we should take literal. This is just to show that there's always been a battle between good and bad. No Bible believer would embrace that view. So some people have a preterist view. They would see this as literal, but everything has been fulfilled in the past from where you and I are living right now. So many amillennialists hold this view. Amillennial, ah, negation, millennium. They believe that there's not going to be a millennium. Now, you say, well, if they don't believe there's going to be a millennium, what do they do with all these passages that talk about Jesus ruling and reigning on planet Earth and that Jesus, you know, is going to reign for a thousand years? How do they handle all of that? Well, whether you're talking about the heavenly school of amillennialism where Jesus reigns in heaven or the earthly school where he reigns in the human heart, the idea is that they have to allegorize or spiritualize scripture. So Israel doesn't mean Israel. The Holy Land doesn't mean the Holy Land. The Holy Land's wherever God happens to dwell. Any day that God would reign in your heart, that's a thousand years. And so the ideas of scripture have to be humpty dumpty. You make a word mean what you choose for it to mean in order to get rid of the millennium. The big problem with amillennialism is not the fact that it negates the millennium. The big problem with amillennialism is how it spiritualizes and allegorizes scripture rather than taking the words of scripture in their historical grammatical dictionary definitions. So some people say, well, no, this is 
being fulfilled now progressively throughout the church age, the historical view. This is largely the view of post-millennialism. Postmillennialism teaches that through the preaching of the gospel, the conservative view, or through deeds of love and kindness, the more liberal view, we bring in the millennium. And by us, bring, we bring in the millennium, and then Jesus comes after that. He comes after a golden age that we have brought in. This was very popular before World War I. And you remember that World War I was the war to end all wars. There was something that proved World War I was not the war to end all wars, and that was World War II. That proved that World War I was not the war to end all wars. And so, postmillennialism has largely fallen on hard times these days. There's been a resurgence of it in the kingdom now, division of charismaticism. But largely, most evangelicals do not embrace postmillennialism now because they don't see the world as getting better and better they see the world as getting worse and worse. Evil seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceived and being deceived. But this still filters its way into a lot of our hymnology. For example, we have a story to tell to the nations that will turn their hearts to the right. The darkness shall turn to dawning and the dawning to noonday bright and Christ's great kingdom will come to earth. That's vintage postmillennialism. Lead on, O King Eternal, not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drum, but by deeds of love and kindness the heavenly kingdom comes. This is vintage postmillennialism. It's in a lot of our hymn books. Unfortunately, it's not in the Bible. Which brings us to the futuristic view, the futuristic view, which sees chapters 4 through 22 as basically going to be fulfilled. This is a view held by premillennialists, and this is what we are. We believe that Jesus is coming before the millennium for the purpose of establishing the millennium. This is the reason that he is coming. All right, now let's unpack this. Let's first of all look at chapters 4 and 5, which is the first half of the tribulation in heaven. And before the tribulation even starts in chapter uh, 4, we have these 24 elders that are seen in heaven. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So the question is, who are these twenty-four elders? Well, you know that in our church governance, the, the Bible term for a pastor is an elder. Even in Old Testament Israel, they had representatives. Baptists have historically believed in congregational government, and we have, uh, we have called a pastor, we have called elders to lead us and guide us. Our church has shepherds, and the Bible term for those shepherds is elders. So they are church representatives. This is the way the term is commonly used in the New Testament. Moreover, there are 24 of these elders. You remember in the Old Testament, 24 is the number of courses that were in the priesthood. So immediately when we hear the number 24, we think in terms of priests. And we know that the, uh, in the New Testament, everybody is a priest. Everybody who is a believer has a priesthood with God. And because that is true, these are representatives of that priesthood. They are clothed in white, which the Bible is going to describe as the righteousness of the saints, the reward for the righteous deeds that they have done. They're wearing Stephanus crowns. These are crowns that are given for service that is done for Christ on the earth. All these things are speaking of church-related things. 
Now some people have said that these 24 angels, these 24 elders are angels, but they can't be angels for one simple reason. Look at chapter 5 verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred tongue and people and nation and made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Now what angel can say you've redeemed us by your blood? This is not a song that's sung by angels. This is a song that angels cannot sing. Obviously here we're talking about church age saints that are in heaven. Now why is this significant? It is significant because they are in heaven before the tribulation is ever unleashed on planet earth. They are out of here. So the church is already existent in heaven before the wrath of God is poured out on planet earth. And we're already there at the Bema seat receiving our rewards for what we have done before the tribulation is unleashed here on this planet. Which brings us to the first half of the tribulation on earth, which we see in chapters 6 through 10. Now, as the tribulation begins, it is on earth with these sealed judgments. There are going to be seven sealed judgments. Remember, Jesus had a scroll, and he begins to crack the seals of that scroll. And as he cracks a seal, another judgment is poured out on planet earth. Seal number one, the first four of these seals are, white, are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the revelation. Seal number one is a white horse. Antichrist comes with a bow, but he has no arrow. He wins a bloodless war. He wins a non-aggressive war, and he takes over the world. Seal number two is a red horse representing world wars. Remember what we studied in Matthew, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. Seal number three is a black horse representing famine. One of the results of these wars that are taking place all over the earth is that there's going to be famine and war brings the ravages of that. Remember the price of food is going to go through uh, the roof as this famine takes place on planet earth. Seal number four is a pale horse. Death and hell come as a result of this, and the result is that one-fourth of the population on the planet will be decimated through this fourth seal judgment. Seal number five is martyrdom, as there is an increasing rise of anti-Semitism that is taking place on planet Earth, so there's going to be martyrdom, especially related to the Jewish people. Seal number six, there's going to be all these cataclysmic disturbances that are going to take place in the heavenlies. And then seal number seven is the announcement of seven trumpet judgments. Now notice how this is going to happen. The seals are cracked and we get six seal judgments. Then within this seventh seal, there are seven trumpet judgments within that seventh seal. And then when the seventh trumpet is blown, there are seven bowl judgments within that. So you see how the tribulation is becoming more intense. It's getting more feverish as we get towards the end of the tribulation. The tribulation is going to give way to great tribulation. But before this seventh seal is uh, cracked, God seals 144 male virgin Jews in uh, Revelation chapter 7. Now this is significant. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. But he goes into great detail to show us that of these 144,000 male virgin Jews that are sealed, there are 12,000 from each tribe. Now obviously this reveals to us then that because there are 12,000 from each tribe, that what is under discussion here is national ethnic Israel. 
This is not talking about some type of spiritual Israel. Some new people of God. It's not talking about that at all. Because what would you have? A spiritual tribe of Asher? A spiritual tribe of Naphtali? I mean, obviously that doesn't make any sense. So obviously what is under discussion here is national Israel. Now, one of the things that makes this so significant to me is that God here is now saving people on a national basis. Why is this significant? Because in the church, God doesn't save people on a national basis. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. God doesn't save people based on ethnicity during the church age. The very fact that he is now once again working with the Jewish people and saving them on an ethnic basis reveals to us the church can't be here because God doesn't do this with church age saints. Which brings us to the fact that the church is not going to be present on the earth while all this is going on. So once these 144,000 male virgin Jews are sealed, then we move on to the seven trumpet judgments. So we move from seven sealed judgments now to seven trumpet judgments. When a trumpet blasts in heaven, a judgment is poured out on planet earth. The first of these is hail, fire, blood, destroys one-third of the, of the vegetation on planet earth. Then there's a second trumpet judgment. It's a meteorite. It destroys one-third of the marine life. The third trumpet, a falling star, destroys one-third of the drinking water on planet Earth. Trumpet number four, a third of the heavenly light is darkened. And things are starting to really escalate. It's getting bad. So much so that the last three of these trumpet judgments are actually going to be called woes. So trumpet five is woe one, trumpet six is woe two, trumpet seven is woe three. So a demonic swarm of torments occurs. That's the first woe, the fifth trumpet. Then there's an unnatural army of some kind that destroys one third of men. That's the second woe. And then the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet judgment, is announcing the great tribulation. Now listen, we've got seven uh, seals, we've got seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is just now announcing, we're just now getting to the great tribulation. So obviously we have some issues coming. So right now we're at the midpoint of the tribulation when we get to chapters 11 and 12. Now notice what happens in chapter 11. Look at verse number 1. He says in Revelation 11:1, 1, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now notice right away we're seeing that at this midpoint we have a rebuilt temple that is being measured. And worship is taking place in this temple, and worshipers are going in. So we've got a rebuilt temple in which Jewish people are worshiping, which would seem to suggest to us that the Jewish people are back in the land and they're worshiping in this temple. But at this midpoint, notice what happens, the sacrificial system is stopped. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they, the Gentiles, tread underfoot forty and two months. So for three and a half years now, this temple that had been erected to help the Jewish people restore their worship system. Remember, Daniel said the sacrifice and the oblation would cease. 
Antichrist comes in and sets himself up as God and this Jewish temple now comes under Gentile dominion. The temple is given to the Gentiles for three and a half years. And notice what happens. These witnesses are martyred. Notice verse uh, 4. These are the two olive trees, the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. They have power to shut up heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood. Okay, now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but use your sanctified imagination, okay, for a little bit. Who shut up heaven so it didn't rain? That sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? Who turned water into blood? That sounds like Moses, doesn't it? Remember Jesus when he said, you'll not any of you die till you see the son, some of you standing here will not die till you see the son, the son of man coming in his kingdom. And then he takes them up to the high mountain and shows them the kingdom in miniature. Who is it that's there on the mountain of transfiguration? It's Moses and Elijah. Now the other, other, other hypothesis that I've heard as to who these witnesses are is that it's got to be Elijah and Enoch because those are the two guys in the Old Testament that never died and they've got to come back so God can kill them because it's appointed unto man once to die. Okay, let me prove this wrong. First of all, at the rapture, none of us are going to die. So if it's appointed unto man once to die, do we all got to come back and get killed? I don't think so. Also, you understand that this is just a rule of thumb. Think of poor Lazarus. It was appointed unto him twice to die. So you understand that when the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, it's not a hard, fast rule that everybody has to see an undertaker once and only once. That's not the point of the passage. So I think it's safe to say, based on the description here, based on the Mount of Transfiguration, that probably the best educated guess that we can give us to the identity of these two witnesses would be Moses and Elijah. Now these two are killed, and it produces a huge swarm of anti-Semitism. Now notice what happens at this point. At this midpoint of the tribulation period, these two witnesses are killed, they're martyred, they're resurrected and taken back to heaven. The sacrifice and the oblation cease. This is the start of Antichrist's big wage of anti-Semitism, the time of Jacob's trouble that is coming upon planet Earth. Now, there's some disagreement on this, but I think I'm right on this. I don't think these two witnesses ministered during the second half of the tribulation. I believe they ministered during the first half of the tribulation. Why? Because you remember, at the rapture, we were all taken out of here. How would the 144,000 Jews got, how would they have received Christ? There was no gospel witness upon the face of the planet. Everybody was taken out. So God sends two messengers to disseminate that gospel, and it is through these two witnesses that the 144,000 get saved. Any other way would see someone getting saved by some type of a heavenly zap without a human witness. I don't think that's the way God operates. He's never operated that way. He's always saved people through human witness. So because the church is taken out, I believe he sends these two witnesses, and it is their testimony that will result in 144,000 male virgin Jews getting saved. And through the 144,000 male virgin Jews getting saved, a plethora of Gentiles will get saved as a result of that of people from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. But at the midpoint, these witnesses are seeing such great results with the 144,000 that they are killed and they are taken out of the way. But God raises them, takes them back to heaven. But then there's a wide sweep of anti-Semitism. 
Verse 13, chapter 12. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, which brought forth the man-child. But yet God is going to protect the nation of Israel. Remember, we saw that in the Olivet Discourse. Those people who that endure to the end, God is going to provide physical safety for them. Which brings us to the Great Tribulation. So God protects Israel, but now we come to the Great Tribulation in verses 13 through, chapters 13 through 18. And the Great Tribulation begins with Antichrist rising to a state of prominence. This beast comes out of the sea, comes out of the sea is the raging nations of the Gentile world. Antichrist rises out of that and comes to a state of prominence. He is going to be energized and worship because he's energized by Satan. And they worship the dragon. They worship Satan, which gave power unto the beast, Antichrist. And they worship the beast, saying, who's like unto the beast? Who's able to make war with him? So Satan energizes this world leader. Then later in this chapter, chapter 13, there's another guy that comes out of the land, another beast. And this is a guy who's going to lead the apostate church. So you've got... The beast who rules government, you got the beast who rules religion, Antichrist and the, uh, and the uh, false prophet, and these guys are going to wreak havoc. So you've got government that's gone to seed and Christendom that's gone to seed. But notice what happens, chapter 13, verse number 18. Here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 603 score and six. Now all of you have been wanting to know what does the number 666 mean? And the answer is I don't know. But I know you're not, no, you're not going to be able to buy or sell without it. I will say this. This is just simply Jeff Ansbollian speculation, but I do think that we're going more and more each passing day to a cashless society. Um, you are you walk in somewhere, anywhere, and try to pay with cash and watch the surprise in people's eyes. Um, now you just go up to the gas pump, you double-click your watch, and... It's not going to be a large step to having an international currency system that really has no currency to it whatsoever. Oh, I'll write you a check. We don't take checks. Uh, I'll just give you cash. We don't take cash. What do you take? You got a number without that number. Now, it's great. The great thing about this is that Antichrist's number is 666. No matter how much he avows to be God and is worshiped, he's still short of seven. Amen? He's 666. Three strikes and you're out. The ultimate victory will become to Christ's followers in chapter 14 as we see that. These are sealed, have a better seal. Look what he says in chapter 14, verse 1. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now listen, if you can have the mark of the beast in your forehead or the Father's name in your forehead, take the Father's name. Take the Father's name. It's a better seal. They followed the lamb, not the beast. Look at verse number four. They, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. 
You see, they're not doomed to failure. The only thing that's doomed to failure is Babylonian philosophy. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But you understand that taking the mark consigns you to wrath. Look at chapter 14, verse 9. And the third angel followed and sang with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now I have some friends that say you can take the mark of the beast and still be saved. I don't know what they do with these verses. Because these verses strongly seem to intimate that when you take the mark, it seals you in the wrath of God. And this is not just some temporary wrath. Look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. These are the strongest Greek words available to express eternality. Eternal conscious punishment is a result of those who take this mark of the beast. So the 144,000 have a better seal. They followed the lamb. The Babylonian philosophy is the thing that's doomed. Those taking the mark are consigned to wrath, and they are consigned to wrath forever. This is significant. And all of this brings us now to the seven bowl judgments. So we have seen seven sealed judgments. We have seen seven trumpet judgments. And now we have seven bowl or vile judgments that are going to be poured out upon planet earth bowl number one festering sores on those who receive the mark bowl number two water is turned to blood killing the remaining marine life bowl number three the fresh water is turned into blood bowl number four the sun scorches people with fire bowl number five the beast kingdom is plunged into darkness Bowl number six, the Euphrates River dries up, preparing the way for the kings of the east to come over. Now, once again, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but people thought, you know, at Armageddon, you got these people from the north and you got these people from the east. One of the world would ever make China and Russia get together. They're two separate forms of communism. They hate each other. Russia and China would never shake hands at the same table. Really? Once again, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but it's amazing who's shaking hands these days. Bowl number seven is atmospheric disturbance. And then look what he says in chapter 16, verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Last Sunday night, Karen and I had some seminary students over to the house to watch some baseball, pizza, wings, and baseball. One of the guys that was there was an avid Giants fan. He wasn't too happy Sunday night. And as we're watching the game, I don't know how many times he would say, oh, and he named the manager's name. He's messing us up again. And then he would make this statement, I'm so done. I'm so done. He must have said this like 20 times that night. I'm so done. What was he saying? I quit. It's over. We're not going to win tonight. I'm so done. You understand that there's coming when every rebellion of God will have raised its ugly head. 
There's coming a big day, ladies and gentlemen, when it's done. The judgment of God will manifest itself. Which brings us to the second coming, the second advent in chapter 17 through 19. Now everything is set for the destruction of Babylon. In chapter 17 you have the destruction of ecclesiastical Babylon. In chapter 18 you have the destruction of political and economic Babylon. Now what does that mean? Remember that Babylon was not technically destroyed. Babylon was absorbed into Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was absorbed into Greece. Greece was absorbed into Rome. But at the core of Rome, there was still Babylonian philosophy, which dates all the way back to the Tower of Babel of one world religion, one world government. Globalism. And now we see that this one world government, this one world religion has met its Waterloo. There's only one kingdom that is worthy to be a universal kingdom and that is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And anything else that seeks to supplant that or take the place of that must summarily be destroyed and that's exactly what happens in chapter 17 and chapter 18. So when we get to chapter 19 there are two suppers. And you have your choice. You can either be at the table or you can be on the menu. The choice is up to you. Now, of course, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's talk just a little bit about that. Now, remember the first half of the tribulation we saw the Bema Seat of Christ at the beginning of the tribulation. Now at the end of the tribulation, we're seeing the saints at the marriage supper of the Lamb right before Jesus comes to planet Earth. Now, I'm a Baptist, and I've heard good Baptist preaching about the marriage supper of the Lamb for years, you know. I've sat under uh, rather rotund preachers who salivated about the mashed potatoes and gravy that was going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is only Jeff Amsbalian hypothesis, but this, I think, is good hypothesis. You remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb is not roast beef and mashed potatoes. Sorry. I believe actually what's going to happen is we will celebrate the Lord's Supper for the last time as Jesus drinks the wine, the cup with us anew in the Father's kingdom. I think that Jesus is going to pull the picture just as he instituted the picture. There will be a final consummation supper with him, just as there was an inaugural supper with him, there will be a removal supper with him, because when we get to heaven, we won't need the pictures anymore. This is so cool. If you were to come up to me after church and my wife was not with me, and you say, I've never met your wife. Oh, let me show you a picture of Karen. And I'd pull out my phone and, oh, there she is. Let me show you Karen. i show you a picture of her. But if my wife's standing right here, I'm not going to say, have you seen my wife? And show you a picture of her. I've got the real thing. I don't need the picture anymore. I don't need the cup or the bread any longer. Because I have the one that the cup and the bread represent physically with me what a wonderful day that's going to be when my Jesus I shall see then we come back he came for us before the tribulation he's coming back with us after the tribulation and then you have the great supper 
and all the carnage that takes place with that. And this will pave the way for the millennium. So the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs in heaven right before Jesus returns to earth in chapter 19. And upon his return, the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire and they will trouble the world no more. Which brings us to chapter 20, which is the millennium. The millennium. And the Bible is clear that the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and Satan is bound for 1,000 years. Believers will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Afterwards, Satan is loosed for a season to deceive the nations. Now, if you're like me, you say, okay, yeah, had him confined for a thousand years. Why'd you let him out? Why'd you parole the dude? During the millennium, we're never going to have better government than we've had at this time. Never have better education than we've had at this time. Never had a better environment than we've had at this time. But no matter how good the government, the education, or the environment, without regeneration, people are still lost. And so the Satan is loosed at least in part to prove to us that the things that we think will revolutionize society, short of the gospel, never do revolutionize society. You understand that we've been taught through the years that we would have better children if we just had fully, fully carpeted, air-conditioned classrooms and state-of-the-lab art laboratories. And the only thing we did was make crime more sophisticated. Because without regeneration, there is no hope for mankind. Not even the millennium in that perfect environment will be able to make this world what it ought to be. After the final revolt, Satan is put down, and he is put down permanently. Look at chapter 20, verse number 10. The Bible says, And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then after that, the great white throne judgment. Now, the great white throne judgment is not to determine if you're saved or lost. Only lost people are judged at the great white throne judgment. It is to determine degrees of punishment. Remember, Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for Capernaum. The judgment will not be based on how wicked the deed, but how much light a person has sinned against. And there will be degrees of punishment. This is a significant passage to me, this end of Revelation 20, because it was this passage that changed the trajectory of the Amsbaugh household. When my mom and dad went to church for the very first time as 20-something-year-old dysfunctional people, that Sunday morning the preacher preached on the great white throne judgment and my mom and dad got saved. Some people are loved into it, and some people are scared into it. Some save with fear. My mom and dad were saved with fear. You know, hell is a great motivator to get saved, don't you believe? Which brings us to chapter 21, which is the eternal state. The last thing that we're left with is a new heaven and a new earth. And the reason we're, we have a new heaven and a new earth is because he says the former things have passed away. Aren't you glad? That is a great statement. The former things are passed away. You know, cultists have knocked on my door for years and tried to hand me this little pamphlet. You can have paradise on earth. <laughs> I don't want it. 
I want to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. If you don't have anything better than that, hit the road. Former things are passed away. He tells us that this new heaven and new earth will be culturally diverse, verse 24. Notice that the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Each unique cultural diverse thing will be there. But nothing that defiles, and there shall no wise enter it, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. And then he tells us in chapter 22, verse 5, and there shall be no night there. You ever have, look at our world and it just seems so dark. It seems like the clouds are hovering over. But ladies and gentlemen, we're going to a place where there's no more night. I was a 20-something old pastor in Philadelphia. And for the first time I heard this song, a teenage girl stood up in our church to sing it. And once I heard her sing it, I requested it often. And even today when our campus church choir sings it, I get all goose pimply, if I could say that. The timeless theme. Earth and heaven are passed away. It's not a dream. God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. Evil is banished to an eternal hell. No more night. No more pain. No more tears. Ever, never crying again. Praises to the great I am. I will live in the light of the risen lamb. <laughs> it always kills me that every time I read this about no more tears, I think of Johnson's baby shampoo. You know, for years, their marketing strategy has been no more tears. Well, I got news for Johnson's baby shampoo. You can wash your kids' hair in that and you can't protect them from all the tears that are coming. No more tears is not by the shampoo that you purchase. It's by the Savior who purchased you. And one day, literally, not just for the duration of a bath, but for all eternity, there will be no more tears. God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. The former things are passed away. Some of you have lived to see horrific things that you never thought you would witness. You see things in our world, see things in our news. You see things that have developed in your own family that you never thought you would live to see. But one day the great erasure will take place and we will go to a place, ladies and gentlemen, where none of that darkness and pain-causing element will exist any longer. And according to chapter 22, verse 11, there's nothing else to say. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. This is the final word. Eternity will leave you where death finds you. The book's sealed. He says in verse 10, seal the sayings of this. Seal not the sayings of this prophecy, this book, for the time is at hand. Nothing can be added to, nothing taken free from it. 
He provides even a curse for those that would add anything to this. The only thing left to say, according to verse 17, is come. We can't add anything to the message. We can't subtract anything from the message. All we can say is y'all come. And I like what he says here. The spirit and the bride say come. This is the tension of evangelism. We can never explain the human element in such a way as to weaken the divine element. We can never explain the divine element in such a way as to weaken the human element. The spirit and the bride say come. I was raised in a very humanistic mindset of um, evangelism where, you know, if you just memorized plans and carried breath mints, people would get saved. And I think that it's okay to memorize plans, and I do think you should carry breath mints. I think you'll get further if you do. But that all having been said, there has to be a Holy Spirit work on a person's heart in order for them to be saved. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work independently of human witness. We can't explain that divine element in such as ways that we can the human element. Isn't the Bible a great balance book? The Spirit and the Bride say, come. So as we look at this final book of the Bible, and the canon of Scripture is complete, nothing else to say except, won't you come on and get in with this?